All right, well, good morning, all. It is time to get started. We've spent um, quite a number of weeks talking about covenant theology. And in theory, I'd like to wrap it up today. I'd like to. And despite the fact that we've spent the amount of time that we have on it, um, much more certainly could have been said. Um, It is not a small topic. Um, There are seminary courses on the whole thing. So um, what I want to do today really is, is just bring it all to a conclusion by taking it taking all of us to the consummation of all things. You see, you you sometimes think and you sometimes wonder, especially as we deal with the nitty-gritty, all these little details and crossing our T's and dotting our I's and being so careful in expressing things. Where is this all going? Where does it all go? Well, let's look at Revelation 21. And which is fun because this is what we talked about yesterday in the men's study. Um, so I mostly kept quiet just to see where this was going to go. Revelation 21. I'm going to read that first section, verses 1 through 8, and we'll see how this is brought to a conclusion, if you will. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He shall dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right. One of the things um, that I've talked about in the past in other contexts is, is kind of the the theological science, if you will, or subject or method of biblical theology. 
or redemptive historical hermeneutics, the way we interpret scripture. Um, now, some that, that want to overemphasize, or well, I think it's overemphasizing, biblical history and like redemptive historical preaching that, um, can oftentimes go to an extreme and find uh, Christ under every single rock of the Bible. Now, the whole of the Bible certainly does. It, it, central to the message of Scripture is Christ and the salvation that he offers. But as one of my professors said, and I've said it before, repeating him, you're not going to find Jesus in the words, now Esau was a hairy man. You're just not, okay? And I actually online had somebody argue that with me. Of course you can. It's like, please stop. Now the whole of the story you can. And that's where, uh, you know, uh, sometimes I get a bit critical of a biblical theological approach to things or redemptive historical approach to things. But on the other hand, sometimes people push back so hard against biblical theology and uh, redemptive historical ways of approaching things that they swing the pendulum so far that they force systematic theology when the text is clear. Uh, uh, This is pointing to Christ. Um, So the two, when we talk about biblical theology and systematic theology, they should complement one another and not be at odds with one another. And so at the end of the day, when people ask me, well, what method of hermeneutics or interpretation or method of preaching do you use? I open up the text, I preach it. It's just preach the word. Um, It's right there. And when the text is pointing to Christ, you point it out. It's really that simple. Now, all that to say, one of the things that I do like a lot with respect to redemptive historical approaches and biblical theology, and this especially comes through with with Gerhardus Voss. Um, Not that he was original, but certainly in more modern times, the emphasis uh, can definitely be traced to him, Um, is this concept of last things first. Last things first. If you really want to understand so many of the things that you find in the Bible, you actually ought to Look to the end. You know how you read a book? Sometimes the temptation is you go to the end of the book, especially if the book is a sequel and you had kind of a a cliffhanger. It's like here comes part two or part three, whatever it is. And the temptation is you just go to the end. Well, how's this going to wrap up? And people do that with murder mysteries too. It's like, let's go to the end. Who done it? Well, there's a certain sense where in those cases, don't do that, you ruin it all. In the case of Scripture and the unfolding of God's plan, you want to know what the goal of his plan is. You go to the end first. You look to the end. And that's, in many respects, what we're doing today, even though we're kind of looking at last things last. Um, And... Hopefully, with all of the things that we have spoken about, we can see those things fulfilled here. 
Now, this is the new heaven and the new earth. The first heaven and the first, first earth have passed away. You've got the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So in this case, the new Jerusalem is what? The men's study, you guys should know this. But it, who, who's the new Jerusalem? Notice how I worded the question. The church, the Christian church. And we get that clue from prepared as a bride. Okay, she's well adorned. And then we hear a loud voice from the throne. And isn't it interesting that the thing that is mentioned is not actually the bride? The thing that is announced is what? We see this in verse three. What do you see there? Yeah, what we, borrowing the language of O. Palmer Robertson from his book, Christ of the Covenants, we have what we see here uh, that he calls the Emmanuel Principle. And of course, because we saw this in Isaiah, what does Emmanuel mean? These are the softball questions. What's that? God with us. Emmanuel, if you want to be technical with the order of the way the expression goes in the Hebrew, with us, God. So, Emmanuel. And notice this loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Why is that so significant with respect to our discussion of covenant theology? It takes you all the way back to the beginning. It takes you all the way back. And most especially, which covenant? Well, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, which we'll touch on. Yeah, Abraham. I will be your God, and they will be my people. And that is reiterated in each of the subsequent covenants, including the new covenant. And now we come to the end. End times. And what is the thing that is proclaimed as the church, adorned as a bride, is presented? Now the dwelling place of God is with men. And so this comes to a head, if you will. It all points to Christ as the one who did this. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And notice that emphasis there, with them. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, what were the symbols in the Old Testament of God with us? The ark, what else? The cloud and fire, the tabernacle, and then subsequently, the temple. Now, all of these things in the Old Testament at various times take a a prominence. Um, And so it's interesting how uh, subsequent to the Exodus, 
right after the exodus. You have the cloud or fire, depending on the time of day, guiding them through the wilderness. And you've got the tabernacle, and then later the temple. And so there's different emphases at different times. And then crossing the Jordan, you've got the ark going forth. And so you've got all these various symbols pointing to the presence of God. And as you think this through, it all foreshadowed what was to come. Then you think of John chapter 1, about the Word. The Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling amongst us. The word there that's translated made His dwelling, some of you may have a footnote in your Bible, that really the, the word that's used there is He pitched His tent, or He tabernacled. Right. And so all of those items, those things in the Old Testament that gave us or were intended to give a sense of the reality that God is with his people now comes to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is that tabernacle who made his dwelling with us. Right? That's what John says, but here's the thing. We come here to this passage that we're looking at. Oh, where did it go? The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. He will dwell with them. And it's actually even repeated a little bit further down. Um, but as you look at Revelation, you see this, bright, this brought to its consummation. The church is now being brought to the one who, who is God himself and tabernacles with his people. Questions or comments just so far on that? Roy? I'm thinking about the first time I read through the Bible someplace in elementary school and just could not figure out all that was there. And there's a sense in which there was a mistake in my mind because I figured I had to be able to figure it all out, obviously. And it isn't obvious. It's, it's a process of learning some pictures. And I'm thinking about later on in school when I would have a class in literature and the teacher would be telling us about all the symbolism that was going on in the novel or whatever. And the literature event people thought that was a lot of fun. I didn't care that much about it, a different kind of event. And yet, it is that, that kind of process that lets us see the picture that the scriptures are presenting to us. It's all connected. And it's connected right. with metaphors and, and, and similes, word pictures that let us know about what God has for us. Yeah. And, and so what we're seeing here in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of those things. We're being given a glimpse 
of the promised fulfillment. And, and, and see, that's something to keep in mind for a couple of reasons. One, we need to stop thinking that that time has now arrived. And, and for those of you that have been in um, discussions about this, various discussions, some of you may have heard of what's known as New Covenant Theology or Covenantal Progressivism or Progressive Covenantalism. Um, Usually these are are, um, Baptistically-minded individuals who are Calvinistic in their way of thinking, but they're not confessional. They don't hold to the 1689 confessional, but they're not quite dispensational either. In fact, they will, tr- they will kick back if you try to tell them they're, they're dispensational. Um, they really are. I, yeah. And um, I, I had to write a paper on this in seminary, and, and what I did was take the wording of a couple of prominent New Covenant theologians and compared it to a common definition of dispensationalism, and the two were the same. Um, the two were identical. So what they need to understand is that in the New Covenant today, we're not done. That, that's the key thing. The, the point of this text is to show us there will be an end. And when they, along with dispensationalists, and even in this case, 1689 confessional London Baptist confession upholders, will say that the new covenant is only the regenerate, um, both experience and scripture really do speak against that because there's an end yet to come. That's really the essence. And so here in the new covenant, though, yes, we agree it is a new covenant. It is a better covenant. It's because the shadows and types have given way to the substance, which is Christ. But as we see throughout so many Old Testament prophecies, even the prophecies that are given that focus on Christ you can trace back and realize there's really a two-tiered aspect to this prophecy about Christ. And that would include the new covenant. John here in Revelation 21, using covenantal language, is bringing us a glimpse of that end. That's what's happening here. This is the goal and we're not there yet. So that's the first thing. But, but there's a flip side because, you know, Every parent in a car has always had to deal with this question from their kids. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer? And you guys ever ask that? Ever? Are we there yet? How much further? (laughs) They don't want to say. I don't blame you because I know I did it as a kid too. Um, So in one sense, that may almost sound discouraging, but John here, for the sake of the persecuted church, is giving them a glimpse. glimpse, uh, You will get there. That's a guarantee. You see, in all of our situations of a long drive, there's all kinds of things that might come up and say, oh, now we can't go. Car breaks down. We've got to turn around. Oh, 
That's not what's going to happen with the consummation with, of all things at the end times. It may be a bumpy ride along the way, but you will indeed get there. And so the point there is one of hope. There's that tension of we're not there yet. Crisis come. My sins have been paid for on the cross, but we're still not there yet. Already, not yet. And you see that all throughout the prophecies of Scripture. That tension of now and also future. Trish? And and those are the things that ought to, ought to, they're intended to, but they ought to cause us to long for heaven. That's going to enhance our singing too. It should, yes. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, and, and it, you know, our primary goal in, as we sing in worship, we are coming as God's covenant people into his presence, led by the Spirit through the Son, into the throne room of grace as a foretaste of the fulfillment of the very same covenant. And the thing is, you know, there is a horizontal level to our worship. Because you think about the passage in Ephesians and its sister passage in Colossians about singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ultimately, all our songs should be directed Godward, but there is a horizontal level to it, which is why we need to hear one another sing and not be overwhelmed by a a praise band and need earplugs. But that's a different subject. The point is, is that as we gather as, as God's people in worship, there's an encouragement one to another to press on. There will be an end to all of this. There will be a time when faith becomes sight. And that's what we're being a glimpse, given a glimpse of here in, in Revelation 21, that God will be with his people. Now you think about all of the other promises that God has made to his people throughout the centuries. And people can open up their Bible and look, oh, the promise here, this promise, that promise, those have all been fulfilled. What reason then should we have to doubt that this promise will not be brought or will be brought? Why would we doubt that this promise would not be brought to, would be brought to completion. Of course it's going to be, because he's been faithful all along, because God is faithful to his covenant. We doubt because we're weak. We're creatures of time. That's correct. And as I'm thinking about people with infirmities, for example, or people who are being persecuted in the present, 
it's so easy to look at what's happening and not to be able to see beyond that. Yeah. And again, as Trish was saying, that makes the corporate worship so important. Yes. It reminds us of what we have. And what you said, we only see what's before us. Remember, that's the whole point of writing the book of Revelation. It's to the persecuted church. What's going on? They're given hope right here. This is your hope that God will fulfill his covenant. This is what should shape our minds and recognizing that we're given a glimpse of the, the fulfillment of what was promised to Abraham, what was promised to Noah, what was promised to Moses, what was promised in the new covenant. Here it is. God himself will be with them as their God. Not even just that he will be their God and they shall be his people. That's, that's there. But with them, with them, that's the beauty of this. It's the consummation of it all. And so you go one step further and you think about, man, we can't wait for heaven. And we we just discussed, um, you know, in a specific case, but just generally, all of us can think of of times where we've mourned the loss of a loved one, a coworker that was close to you, or a friend, neighbor, whatever the case may be, that hits you hard and so forth. And you think, and then you think of others who suffer in this life with the hardships, others who suffer persecution because of their faith, others who are or, or just enslaved to their sin. And we weep and we mourn over these things and we long for heaven so that there will be no more crying. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. But you know why there's no more crying? What does the text say here in verse four? He will wipe away your every tear. You talk about a picture of covenantal love for his people. God himself will wipe away your every tear. It's not just that heaven is a really nice place. And it's true, it is. But there's no crying, not because, you know, you think about, you finally get to the destination. We'll go back on our trip. We're excited for a vacation. We're gonna get there. It's like, yes, we're happy. 
But you know what? You still got troubles in this life. You get a little reprieve. And sometimes even in the midst of the vacation, there are difficulties. Not so in heaven, because in heaven, all of it will pass away. There'll be no more tears because God himself will wipe away every tear, everyone. This is God with us. And ironically, that's the kind of a concept and thought that makes you want to cry now. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Right. Crisis in our midst. And see, all of this is intended to give each and every one of God's people that sense of hope and anticipation so that they would press on. Now, why? You notice the language here in verse 7. That's the whole point that John is presenting us with this. You see verse 7, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. Notice that means that you and I are actually active. It's not a picture of Jesus did it, you can't do it, hallelujah, that's it. Don't try. Not at all. The whole language all throughout Revelation is this. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes, to the one who perseveres. So this covenant promise is given to encourage you. Think about this, persecuted churches in John's day, that they would overcome the hardships because of what awaits them on the other side. That's the essence of the covenant right there. To the one who conquers, he will have this heritage. And heritage there is language of inheritance. And what's attached to the covenant? Inheritance. And if that wasn't enough for you, and I will be his God, and then you would think, oh, and they will be his his people. No, notice what it says. He will be my son. Not just his people, but his son adopted into God's family. And that language of heritage or inheritance and sonship Bring it all together for us. This has been the goal from the beginning. Why study all this covenant theology? To give you hope that you may overcome and press on to the end. That's why. That's why God is faithful to his covenant. He bound himself to do these things. He has to do them, not because he's obligated in some way to us, but because he obligated himself to us. You understand that distinction? That's a huge distinction. Some people think, well, God was obligated to offer us grace. No, he wasn't. But once he established the covenant, he obligated himself for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ, to follow through with that which he's promised. That's the essence of the covenant. Mark?
living in freedom. And yeah. Says, and, and it's just the opposite. They're living in, in, in an environment, a world of chaos that they don't know what to do with. But but they look at the Christians and say, oh, you guys are you know, bound to all these people. But they, just, but they don't realize that they're living in, in this world of chaos that they don't know what to do with. Yeah, they suppress the truth. Yeah, and they the, the, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the truth of who God is, the truth of their own state. It, you know, the, the truth of the matter is unbelievers have faith. You know what their faith is in, though? Themselves. That, that's a more philosophical way of thinking. But, and I realize the Bible does speak of faith, those who have faith and those who do not. In those cases, it's a question of the object of that faith. If the object of your faith is not Christ, you've got no hope. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And living the way they do, they think they're free. And that's, that's part of the issue. And Christians can easily be tempted to think that in this life, we're bound somehow. We're in bondage. We can't have any fun. We're suffering. We must be doing something wrong. Those kinds of things. Our faith needs to look beyond to the end. And you think about, and, you know, because it was mentioned, if you would turn to, to, to Joshua, the end of the book of Joshua. And Joshua is about to die, go to the way of the world. He charges the leaders. Joshua 23, verse 14. It's not even the last chapter, although you still find some of this there too. Joshua talking to Israel's leaders, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Not one word. And see, if Joshua can say that then, to give them hope to press on and to persevere, that everything else that God has promised will come to pass, how much more you and I, when we see these shadows and types make way for the substance, which is Christ, how much more should we be saying not one word of all that God has promised has failed? And you know what that means? No word of his that he has promised will ever fail. So the end that we see here that God will be with us as our God and we will be with him. His dwelling, his tabernacle, that's actually the word there is used. The dwelling place of God is with men. He'll dwell with them. He tabernacles with them as our God. And we, not just as his people, but as his children. You talk about ultimate covenantal fulfillment. 
Faith becomes sight. Why all this on covenant theology? Here it is. They're right there. And all that the signs and symbols of the Old Testament and now what baptism and the Lord's Supper signify, they are there and intended to give us hope and strengthen our hope of this promise that's come true. Those are his pledge that these things will happen. And so we press on. Roy? I'm thinking about how, on the one hand, it's simple, but on the other hand, it's not working, maybe very difficult to think through. Let me illustrate. It's simple to recognize that dispensationalism errors are very wrong, and that the people who want to advance the nation-state Israel, founded in 1948, as being the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, are going to have a approach to Near Eastern geopolitics that's very wrong. So you can put all that aside and say, this is wrong. But what do you replace it with? How do we think through, for instance, what's happening in Ukraine in terms of God's promises? And I don't think that's trivial. I, I see that we have some very important, practical daily life encompassing a lot of our, of our thinking about all of reality in what we're exploring right here. But I also see this is not trivial. Yeah, and it, it, given the fact that these, that, you know, Revelation was originally written to the seven churches who were not in the promised land, and John's appealing to covenantal promises that have nothing to do with a plot of land in Palestine. It has more to do with their lifestyle in this world, waiting for the hope of the consummation of things to come. That's what, they're, that's what John is pointing to. And that's what he's pointing all of us to. How do we now live knowing that God's promises are faithful and true? We press on no matter what this world throws at us. We press on. Boy, I don't know. I, sometimes I struggle with doubt on these things. He's given you baptism. He's given you the Lord's Supper. He gives to you the word preached every week. He gives you the word to read. He's given you the down payment, the deposit of the Holy Spirit in your life. All of these things point to the reality and encourage, should encourage you to press on to the end. Christ is seated. Christ is seated. Right. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any last minute questions, comments? Well, good. I guess you're all experts on covenant theology now. We'll see. I don't know about that. Um, so again, if there were some books that I would encourage you to read on it, of course, it's a bit academic. O. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants. Uh, it's, it's had numerous printings. I think it was first published right around 1980, give or take. Um, also, um, they've been transcribed by a series of lectures from a seminary class from J. Ligon Duncan, 
um, that's where you can actually find that for free. If you uh, have a Kindle, you can use that one. Um, if you want to go a bit old school, there's even uh, Herman Vitzius's work on it. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of different resources that are out there. Conrad? The audio for Lincoln Dungeon stuff is available for free as well. That's true. You can actually, li- if you prefer to listen to it, you can actually listen to the lectures as they happen. Yeah. So. All right. Well, great. Let's close in prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, how we rejoice that you are a God who is faithful to his covenant promises. We can have a sure hope because you have obligated yourself by way of covenant to bring to pass all that you have promised. And even as you, through Joshua, told your people that not one word of all that you have promised has failed, how much more we on the other side of Christ's resurrection and ascension should we be reminded that not one word of all that you have promised has failed or will fail. And now, Lord, may this truth spur within us a great desire to come into your presence to worship and praise you. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.